Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Uh, thank you all for coming out. Uh, before I hand it off to Ben to introduce our guest, I just want to get a rough sense. All right. Raise your hand if you feel like you could adequately explain to someone not from Illinois who Mike Madigan is and why he's important. All right, so that's like max 50% of our audience. So as we chat here, guys, let's remember the half of the people who didn't raise their hands who need to walk out of here being able to raise their hand. Um, all right, so Ben? All right, thank you very much, Maya. And uh, so my job right now is to introduce our two distinguished guests, and they are distinguished guests. And uh, I'm going to start with uh, introducing Elena Hampton. Uh, she's got a fan in the audience. Uh, and uh, Elena, I met Elena, we were just talking about it, I think it was six years ago. Uh, she had just finished working on the campaign uh, to unseat Kenny Duncan uh, in uh, the South Loop. That was a huge campaign. And I remember that's when my eyes opened. I was very uh, uh, ignorant would be the word. And Elena can re recall this. I did not realize that Marty Quinn was the chief operative. You probably remember how st stunned I was that this quiet alderman, who is Michael Joseph Madigan's uh, alderman in the Chicago City Council, representing the 13th Ward, was the political operative that Madigan sent dispatch to all these important races. And so I started following things a little more closely. So Elena Hampton was right there with them. She had her break from that organization. I'm sure she's going to tell you all about it in a little while. And she's sort of a hero uh, in the expose, in my humble opinion, of what the Madigan organization is. So really happy to have you here. And just, this woman's got a lot of guts, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, and on my right, a man with a lot of guts, too, Dave McKinney. It's his second time on this stage. Uh, ace reporter for WBEZ. Thank you, Frank. And uh, the last time, I don't know if you remember this, you were on this stage. It was with McDunk. He was my uh, partner in crime then. Uh, and you were talking about uh, running afoul of one Bruce Rauner. So we got a person who ran afoul of Bruce Rauner, and we got a person who ran afoul of Michael Joseph Madigan. So, and they're both here to tell it like it is. So a big hand for these guys. I think they're a couple of heroes. All right, that's my introduction. Maya, you get the first question. All right, so I'm going to ask, first I'm going to ask Ben a question to kind of get us oriented. And then I'm going to ask a question that I think I want all of us to answer uh, before we really get rolling. So Ben. In a nutshell, who is Michael Joseph Madigan and why is he important? Michael Joseph Madigan is uh, or was the most powerful Democrat in the state of Illinois. He controlled every bill that came out of Springfield. He uh, essentially controlled every judge who got put on the bench. He controlled slating. He uh, controlled the election 
of states reps, state senators. Uh, he controlled the flow of legislation. He was the man you had to go to if you want your legislation passed uh, in Springfield. As such, he was an imp uh, impediment to people like me of the lefty persuasion because he did not want our far left legislation to pass in Springfield because it would alienate the business interests that were also sponsoring him. So he's playing footsies with lefties like me and with powerful corporate interests. I would love to get their opinion on that. Uh, and as a result, we didn't get the, the good progressive legislation we needed until he figured it was safe for his caucus members to vote for it. Uh, and he uh, fell from grace as a result of a political scandal that this gentleman knows quite a bit about, the Commonwealth Edison scandal, and as a part of another sexual harassment scandal uh, that Elena knows probably more than anybody in the state about. Uh, and so that is my nutshell. Uh, description of Michael Joseph Madigan. I mean, I feel like the most basic missing piece is just that this man was also at base the state representative for this little district on the southwest side of Chicago. What's the number? 22. 20, 22nd district. That he, that's, act, that's actually how he got elected. And then he was the longest serving speaker of any state legislature. Uh, he was the longest serving speaker of the Illinois State House and long, served longer than in any other legislative leader in, in the United States. So here's my next question. Um, I want each of you guys to tell us when did you first hear about Mike Madigan and what impression did you get about this guy based on what you heard? So. I'll go first. My first, uh, my very first encounter with the idea of Madigan was about three months into living in Chicago. I moved here in 2013. I was uh, an intern at the Chicago Tribune editorial board at the time, and I broke my foot, uh, and I then had to get down to the Tribune building by taking an Uber. And Uber had just gotten started and it was back when people still chatted with their drivers and that was really normal. So I'm like with in my second ever Uber, because uh, I have this broken foot, and the driver was just was this like middle-aged man who just was like ranting and raving about Mike Madigan. And he just was talking about how corrupt this guy is, how he runs the show, and how he's this and that. And only in retrospect, so my impression was like, okay, this is some kind of important figure here. And as the months went on, this was ramping up to the gubernatorial campaign that Bruce Rauner ended up winning that spring. I realized that what this guy was saying was like the Rauner campaign propaganda about the chief opponent actually being Mike Madigan. Um, so, yeah, that's how I first, it was many years before I actually understood what this guy has actually done in the state and, you know, we'll separate the wheat from the chaff, but, yeah. Uh, Elena, what about you? What was your first encounter with the idea of Mike Madigan? Well, I was born and raised in central Illinois, so I, in a Republican family, I should say, in a Republican area. Um, so I always knew and was taught that Chicago politics was just completely corrupt. And I think that's just the first idea I ever got about Madigan or Blagojevich, anyone. Um, and I was really conditioned to believe that Chicago was this horribly corrupt and unethical place. So falling into working with Madigan is a really strange story. I actually just applied for the Democratic Party of Illinois right when I graduated from college. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. 
Um, what was the job that you were applying for? I was a field organizer on my very first campaign back in 2012. So I was working in the Springfield Decatur area because I grew up near Springfield. And halfway through that election, I was asked to move to Addison, Illinois again for the race with Kathy Willis against Skip Saviano, which was also a really huge race. On this election is when I met Kevin Quinn and Marty Quinn. And um, Marty Quinn just really took a liking to my work ethic, I guess I would say. Um, I had been applying for the Peace Corps at this time. I had actually been interviewing to go into the Peace Corps at the time when one of the top administrators in the organization asked if I would consider working with the Democratic Party of Illinois and um, the House Democrats full time. And I said, absolutely not. Like, I'm going into the Peace Corps. This is a lifelong dream. I said, but I'll consider it if you move me to Chicago, full knowing that they never move people to Chicago, especially not people from downstate, because it's harder to get people to work downstate than it is in Chicago. Um, and like three weeks later, they followed up and said, start learning Spanish. You're going to be moving to the southwest side of Chicago and being mentored out of the 13th Ward office. And that is my origin story of Mike Madigan. Wow, mentored in the 13th Ward office. Did yeah. you ever actually meet him there? Yeah, of course. So what was that first meeting like? Um, I was afraid. It was, in, it was in October. It was like a year after I had started working there. Um, I mean, even within the organization, everyone acts like he's just like some, I don't know, almost like a god. So when I met him, it was I was afraid. I was like starstruck, maybe. Um, and he was just like walking around in the hallway in this office. And um, he said hello. I said hello. And that was it. And this was all happening in the 13th Ward political, like the, the 13th Ward office. Yes. Which, for those you don't know, is located on the second floor of like the Lithuanian National Heritage Museum <laughs> in the back room behind like several layers of bulletproof glass. And you have to ring like five doorbells to get back there. And I've shown up there as a reporter, immediately got pushed out and like subsequently got like a phone call from, what was his name? Steve the, Brown. Yeah, Steve. So, it's just like not, there were all these elderly people there like waiting to get their constituent services issues worked out. So I got the sense that it was like a pretty robust constituent services operation, but anyone poking around with any questions was not meant to find that place. <laughs> That's true. Um, ben, what about you? What was your first encounter with Madigan? Or well, the I, I, Madigan? I've only had one encounter with Madigan, personal one-on-one with him, and uh, I was briefly telling Elena about, or maybe David can't remember, it was a total deal cut, so it's so appropriate. Uh, and um, so uh, there was, Madigan was running for re-election as uh, chair of the Illinois Democratic Party, uh, and there was one committeeman, Peter Jenko, who had just been elected, who wasn't going to vote for him. Uh, and God bless you, Peter Jenko. Uh, he had been a guest on my show many times, uh, and he, saw, he told me, he goes, uh, I am going to meet with Madigan, uh, but I'm going to make sure that he promises to come on your show. And uh, I know this is deal cutting. <laughs> Elena Hampton would have been proud of me. And so I said, okay. And so he, give Mad Madigan credit to his word. He came on my show with Janko. And um, he didn't, I mean, you this know. This was kind of recent. Yeah, I've only had a show recently. This is the show I got fired from. 
And uh, as opposed to the show I have now, uh, Dave and I could probably do a whole show on getting fired. Anyway, um, so uh, uh, he came on, and he was on for like half an hour. And he, he really played typical Mad Dog. He kept his cards close to his vest. He didn't reveal anything, say anything. Uh, he didn't say anything. I mean, I remember I mean, that he interview. Literally he talked. didn't say anything. Okay, words came out of his mouth. Yeah, but he didn't uh, say anything. No, well, I mean, he's not going to You know, Ben, I've been waiting all these years to tell, and you're the only guy I wanted to tell. Uh, yeah, so I know who killed Kennedy. No, he didn't do anything like that. Um, but he did have this one line, which uh, it was like, quote unquote, newsworthy. You'll get a kick out of this. He, the only thing that anybody who heard that interview could squeeze out of it that was newsworthy was he said, I feel good. Uh, vigorous, I could go for a long, long time. And so it, this, that little bit got written up in the newspapers. And I was like, yeah, I'm in the paper. <laughs> so they didn't mention me, they just mentioned Mad Dog. Anyway, that was my uh, one, ex I have many exchanges with Steve Brown, who actually sat on this stage once, was our guest here. Uh, and he was always fun to talk to, always told jokes and stuff. but. Uh, Never ever had an encounter with Madigan, and I never would have been let into the back room where you were ever. They would have kicked me out so fast. I think they regret letting me in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, thank God they did. Well, Dave, what about you? What was your first encounter with this strange godlike figure? I, I mean, I was a reporter out in the suburbs in the mid '80s, and like everybody else, I was I was a ba I'm a baseball fan, so I was watching you know, the whole Comiskey Park uh, vote happening in the House. I mean, I didn't have any firsthand experience with him then, but I was just fascinated by, by, you know, here's a guy that's making this deal happen, you know, and it was so much drama. And, you know, the, the way that that deal came together was, you know, it, 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 the, 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 you know, the clock struck midnight when everything was supposed to end, and, and uh, they weren't quite there yet. Thompson was on the floor, the governor, and, and you know, Madigan, I think, wanted this to happen because he's friends with Reinsdorf. And, and so, you know, the clock keeps going past midnight, past midnight, when you need a higher vote threshold to pass things. And, and of course, you know, finally the job got done. And, I'm, and you just sit there and you watch it like this. What was the job that got done? Well, the job that got done is, is guaranteed rate field right, right now. Yeah, because before that, Comiskey Park had been around since the early 1900s, and they knocked it down. But, but I, you know, I, I, would in, I would encounter him a lot in Springfield. I went to Springfield in 1995 and spent 19 years there. And, and early on, I mean, he was pretty accessible. Um, I was there when, uh, you know, right when I arrived was when he was in, you know, uh, he, he was the House Minority Leader, which it was the two-year period of time where the, the Republicans took advantage of this gigantic wave election in 1994 and took every single office in the state of Illinois. Uh, they took control of the House and the Senate, and, and you know, he was on the outs. And it was so strange because he would never come to the floor. He didn't like, I, I don't think he liked the, you know, the indignant part of it, like how, you know, this is not what he's used to. But when I was down there, like, I remember, do, you know, sitting in his office for probably like an hour um, once uh, in 90, 97, I think, you know, Lisa, you know, he was, he was trying to get Lisa into the state Senate. He wanted to elevate her career. His and daughter. Lisa Madigan, the former yeah. attorney general, right? And, and uh, you know, it was really interesting hearing about him talk about his experience as a father and about, uh, you know, how he, he didn't want Lisa to get into politics, but she was so persistent. She kept pushing and pushing. 
he, he thought that you know his enemies would would attack her instead of him, and and so it was kind of an interesting you know experience about him talking about all of that. But you know over time it just became like this. Uh, you know eventually he became more and more um, kind of the speaker who wouldn't speak. You know he didn't he he didn't uh, do interviews very often. Um, it, it was a way you know controlling information for him was was a was part of the whole game plan. And and so, you, you know, I remember like all of us going years without him coming out into the open to answer any questions about anything. One of my buddies uh, at the Post-Dispatch in, in uh, Springfield, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, he had an intern who grew up in Madigan's neighborhood. And, and this young woman used to go trick-or-treating at the Madigan house. And lo and behold, nobody else in the press corps was getting interviews with Madigan. Well, they, they rang her up and had the, the, the intern go down and, you know, talk to the speaker, so. But he, he's, you know, they're just stories after story after story after him. And one last one that I will leave you with was, you know, in back on Lisa, you know, she, she had a short period of time in the state Senate. And in 2002, she ran for attorney general. And it was, it was right as the Republicans in Illinois were kind of losing their grip on power. But they had a, a very formidable formidable candidate in the DuPage County state's attorney named Joe Burkett. And, and so it was just a real ugly fight. And, and one of the stories that I, I developed during that campaign, um, I, I'd been writing a year or two earlier about how uh, Madigan would just dole out these, these bonuses to staff members. And there's nothing wrong if you're in the business world in getting bonuses. But there, there's a section of state law that says, hey, you're not supposed to give these out to state workers. They're, they're, you're just not. And he was kind of doing it to, to reward them and what have you. And I discovered this thing where a bunch of staffers um, wound up getting these bonuses on like December 31st of 2001, I think it was. Or maybe it was 2000, I can't remember. But, but the very next day, they all go off the state payroll and they go onto Lisa's payroll. And I wrote a story about, well, that's interesting, you know, these guys are kind of get put in, having some money put in their pockets as they go out into the trenches to fight for Lisa Madigan. And it, it you know, it took probably six months, but uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office got interested in that here, and, and they subpoenaed Madigan's office for, for payroll records of these people. And I remember writing a little story in the Sun-Times, it was back when you know, we had an owner named Lord Black of Cross Harbor, <laughs> Conrad Black, and, and they were just, you know, just the, the paper, it was before the internet kind of, and, and the paper was just like, you had news holes that were like this big. And so I didn't get any space to write this story that was important about a subpoena going to the house speaker. And, and uh, anyway, I remember in the reporting of that, I didn't, I just didn't have room to include this, but Steve Brown said, hey, we, uh, we asked them to subpoena us. We just wanted it to be above board. We, they asked us for this record, these records. We asked them to subpoena us. And I thought, wow, I didn't know that's how the U.S. Attorney's Office worked. They, you know, taking, I didn't know it either. You know, and, and anyway, back to this little news, you know, I had three paragraphs of space. It was a great detail, but I didn't have room to get into it. You know, it was just like, he was subpoenaed. This is what they say, goodbye. And, and so the next day, I get this phone call in my office from Joanne Sullivan, who was his secretary. Uh, administrative assistant, uh, Mr. Madigan would like to speak with you. Uh, Dave, we, we told you that we asked for that subpoena and you didn't, you didn't put that in your story. Can you tell me why? 
And it was like, it was like the, it was like the, it was a surreal moment. And I just sort of, you know, as all this stuff now with his legal troubles, you know, unfolds, I, I keep thinking of that anecdote. It's like, well, that's kind of an interesting. It is, man. I didn't know that story. And the, the fact that he uh, would himself call you, not ask Steve Brown to call you, uh, is an interesting little detail. Um, Oh, Elena, I have to ask you this before we uh, get into the details of what happened with you and, and before uh, Dave explains Commonwealth Edison. You're the only one, aside, I did not realize you had that moment with Madigan, although it's hardly a good moment, but um, he's calling to chastise you and give you, no, but you were given grief by Rauner and Madigan. Yeah. That's like some, that's the daily Michael's, double. Man. As Michael Sneed would say, the don't invite him item. Right? Yeah, so you're, um, you're the only one who actually on this stage, maybe in this room, could say that you, saw him in a good light. Uh, you're probably the only one in this room who said you could saw him in any light. Uh, so just talk a little bit about that because we're going to get into how wretched, this is me speaking, he was uh, when you came forth uh, with your story and how disloyal he was to you. Um, but before that happened, you saw things in him that you must have thought virtuous. So talk a little bit about the Michael Joseph Madigan that only you got to see because you were there working in the back rooms. So I worked in the 13th Ward office on and off for uh, five years. Um, from a very young age, I think I started when I was 23. Um, I was mentored by Marty Quinn, who is the right-hand man of Mike Madigan. It's his top political operative. And still an alderman? Still an alderman. And um, I didn't see Madigan in the office as frequently as you would think. He would really only come on like Saturdays or on the weekends. Um, but I would run into him in the hallway sometimes. You know, if I was using the paper cutter, he would tell me to be careful, don't cut my fingers. Um, he had a, they had a Keurig machine in the hallway, so I would make coffee. And his favorite coffee is this Tully's French Roast coffee. And he knew that I liked that too. So when he realized that, sometimes when I would come into the office, he would make me a cup of coffee if he was making himself a cup of coffee. And one notable moment, I was actually working on Juliana Stratton's state representative race, which Ben mentioned earlier. Um, that was a really, really quite a large race, a $5 million state house race, which is insane. Um, I was having a meeting with uh, Marty Quinn and some other operatives, and uh, Mike Madigan actually walked into the hallway. We were in Marty's office. Mike Madigan walked into the hallway to the Keurig machine, and he turns, interrupts this meeting, and says, Elena, do you want some coffee? And I was shocked. I mean, I was just like, turn, and I said, yes and just turned back because I didn't know what, to, you don't say no to Speaker Madigan, I don't know. <laughs> um, and when I remember leaving that meeting that day and one of my colleagues was like, how in the heck did you just have the speaker make you a cup of coffee in this meeting? And I was like, I have no idea. Um, but you know, Marty Quinn and I worked together for a really long time and um, some would say I was his protege and I think over the years, Madigan just grew a lot of respect for me in the sense I was extremely loyal. I mean, they would send me to races all over the suburbs, all over the city. Um, 
I remember a race I was sent out to work with Deb Conroy in the suburbs and I showed up to knock on doors with Deb Conroy one day and she was like, you work with Marty Quinn, don't you? And I said, yes. And she said, so the speaker is spying on me. And you know, I just shrugged my shoulders. I don't, I never would answer anything. But of course, that's why I was there. Anyone knew if I showed up to their race to knock on doors with a candidate, it was because they wanted, they wanted me to report back of what was actually going on on that race. Is that what loyalty meant to them? I mean, yeah, I think so. Wait, so like, I didn't notice. Uh, so like, you would give them intel about what you saw? Was it the purpose to say, well, this one's slacking off and wasting uh, yes. the speaker's money? Yeah, that kind of thing? absolutely. So they weren't interested in like, well, so-and-so is a drinking problem. <laughs> no. it, mm. it's all, it all comes down to knocking on doors. You know, I was probably one of their top door knockers. Um, when I worked for the government side, which was only one year, um, even when I was working for Sylvana DeBars' district office, Marty Quinn would ask Sylvana and I to knock on doors 25 hours a week on top of the government work I had to do. That was government walking. Sometimes Marty would challenge us to do 40 hours a week of legislative government walking, and then after work, I would have to knock on doors for political stuff. So he would ask me to go you know, out to Kathy Willis's campaign office or this race or that race, wherever they would send me. Um, I mean, I probably knocked on doors maybe 70 to 80 hours a week when I was really young. You know, you told me that anecdote about the coffee thing, and it really stuck with me. I just, I, it, and I, I, I still to this day have a weird time processing it. I mean, what, did it feel like he was just being paternal to you? Um, I think he was just, I think one thing about me is I always treated the speaker like he was a normal human, as opposed to many of the young staffers would always treat him like he was, you know, if he walks in the room, you don't say anything. You, you know, you don't engage with him. And I, I would always say hi to him if I saw him. And I think he was just trying to build some level of rapport where I wouldn't feel uncomfortable being around him because I worked in that office for a decent amount of time. It, mm -hmm. it would make sense for him to want to have some form of relationship with me. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm wondering, you know, because the 13th Ward and the 22nd District are like the places that ultimately are the source of his power. Um, the voters there are who we have to thank for having him be in the House for so long, to be the Speaker for so long. So what is it that for all that time he did for these folks? What is it that he did for the voters of the 22nd District that made them over and over again send him to the state house, or is it just he was so good at eliminating any possible choices for them to make that that you know they just kept voting him in? It's probably a few things of what you're mentioning, but one of my favorite lessons Marty Quinn taught me. Um, he said, you know, Elena, the main thing people care about when they look out their front door is what they see. Are the roads paved? Are the sidewalks cracked? Are the lights working? Are there rats? And he said, if you're taking care of those things, you'll get reelected over and over and over and over again. And that's something he taught me when I was, I don't know, 23 years old, almost a decade ago. Um, and that was their mentality. And, they, and this is written about a lot, you know, com like basic constituent services is what will get you reelected. Is there a part of this that 
he and his political organization were able to get resources from the city and state to provide those constituent resources better than, let's say, you know, uh, elected leaders in, in other parts of the city or the county or the state? I'm not sure about that. Perhaps Dave might know the answer better than me, but you know, they would use political funds on top of government funding. So, you know, Marty would always talk about this graffiti blaster that they had oh, purchased. Yeah. yeah, he loves to talk about that. And they paid for that out of political funds. So they, ha you know, they have huge campaign coffers, which we know because they're spending it on the, this investigation now. Um, but they would use that additional campaign funding to um, provide more services to their constituents. And a lot of representatives or elected officials can't, cannot do that. All right, before we get to uh, the investigation part and uh, the Commonwealth that is a part, when I was listening to you talk, I had, this popped into my head. Uh, I think I've asked you this before, too. Uh, so they expected loyalty from you. They expected loyalty from everybody in your organization. It, uh, I won't call it a cult, but when you were talking, I was thinking cult. And, and the part that's always bothered me, and I've put it in print many times, is when you reached out to them, they weren't loyal to you. And so I'm trying to figure this out. Like, I just watched The Godfather for the 50th time, and the one thing about The Godfather, he took care of business within the family, you know what I'm saying? Madigan didn't take care of business in his family. And so my question is this. Was it because he felt conflicted? It's like, well, I like Elena, but I really like the Quinn brothers. So I don't know what to do. I think I'll go hide under the bed and ignore it. Or was it his way of saying, I don't care about you and your accusations of being harassed by these other guys. All I care about is you knocking on doors. You must have processed this. What do you think it is? Which combination of those two? Well, with the Quinn brothers, you know, Marty Quinn was mentored by Madigan since he was like 18. So of course the loyalty was gonna be with Marty Quinn and Kevin Quinn. Um, and and that, Kevin Quinn was the one that was harassing you. Yeah, Kevin Quinn was the one that was harassing me. And I always knew that, which is why you know, the harassment lasted for five months, and I normally wouldn't allow something like that to go on. It was just, I didn't know how to handle the situation because I knew I was gonna lose my job. I just knew it was, gonna, was not going to work out. It's a small office. I worked with Kevin and Marty on a very regular basis. I had to see him all the time. I was afraid of him. And um, I knew when it came down to it, Marty wasn't going to choose me over his brother. And I knew Mike Madigan was not going to choose me over Marty Quinn. That's a no-brainer. I'm, I'm like a nobody. I'm from downstate Illinois. I didn't grow up in the 13th Ward or anything like that. Um, and the situation, I think, was mishandled. It was handled very, very poorly. And I think there's a lot of speculation now that uh, people believe Marty Quinn should have gone to Madigan right away told him about this and if that had happened Madigan would have handled it more appropriately Because I originally reported it to Marty Quinn and Marty Quinn never took it to the speaker Which is why I mailed a letter to Madigan's house six months later um, Full knowing that if I mailed a letter to Madigan's house He would open it because it was from me like that's how I mean he knew me being around um, and 
I, I think at this point, um, you know, sexual harassment is an extremely serious situation anywhere. And, you know, he had his attorney call me. And I think that makes sense that an attorney would call me and not him. Madigan had his attorney call yes. you. Yes. So instead of him reaching out, which I thought he would because we had enough of a rapport, um, and I it, honestly, if he had reached out to me, I think that all of this would have been completely different because I wasn't looking for anything. I just wanted to tell him why I left the organization because to him, I just disappeared um, after five years. And, um, but you know, he had his attorney call me and uh, just to be completely transparent, I didn't like her before that conversation. So sending me to her and having a conversation with her um, was probably one of the worst things he could have ever done. I already didn't trust her. Yeah, I think it's because he was too scared to take a stance. There, I said it. Uh, all right, so he mishandled completely, totally. It's so obvious, uh, Dave, the, uh, Elena's uh, coming forward with these allegations. Uh, and that leads to the Commonwealth Edison scandal in a way because I, he has this reputation for being the maestro, the behind-the-scenes guy. No detail is too small for him to take care of, okay? He calls you about that, that subpoena thing, right? He made coffee for Elena. All right, how in the hell did he get nailed in this scandal. How could Mr. Maestro, Mr. No Detail is too small for him to take care of, get caught up in this situation where he's got this uh, very detailed case against him and he's burning through money, as Elena was saying, defending himself? How could this happen to him? I, I mean, part of that was this, uh, I, I wouldn't say it's a myth necessarily, but you have to kind of question whether it was a myth of, of this kind of impenetrable force that, that nobody could touch him that he that 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 you know he had such a, a a prized intellect that he was incapable of making mistakes I mean I, I will never forget Elena your your press conference initial one was in 2018 I, I will never forget like being in the newsroom at WBEZ and watching on television that and and just m my jaw hit the floor when I heard Elena make lay out her case basically because you know I had watched kind of over time the way Mannequin would operate and the way he and his staff would punish people who who got out of line like you know to him one of the biggest kind of things it was just a procedural thing that would never result in stories but like you know every two years at the beginning of the legislative session they would tweak the house rules in certain ways of course to screw the Republicans in whatever way they could you know and, and that was the most important vote. He wanted everybody in his caucus to be in line with him. And I remember, you know, I think, I don't know if it was Elaine Neckritz, there were, there were a couple of times where people, you know, they were just pissed at him for something. And they would maybe vote present, you know? And it just like, all right, well, you lose a committee chairmanship or you lose uh, your parking space or, you, you know, you lose your staff. You lose these kind of, that, that kind of punishment would happen. And so when Elena made her, you know, story clear to the world, it, it, it was a bombshell, an absolute bombshell. And I just knew what kind of courage it took to do that. I mean, you were, re you were taking on this, you, you know, uh, as you said, Ben, somebody who, who really kind of had more power in Illinois than any mayor did, than any governor, 
and, and, and you're, you're a person that is, you know, you're a young woman that, you know, at the start of your career, you're risking everything, you know? And I, I just thought, wow. So, you know, just when you think you can't see anything bigger, a bigger bombshell, you know, then it hits, you know, and it's Commonwealth Edison. And, and it was in July of 2020 that, uh, you know, the U.S. Attorney called a hastily planned press conference to, to outline that they had, they had just signed this document, 36-page document, with Commonwealth Edison, in which Commonwealth Edison, it, it didn't acknowledge that it had engaged in, in bribery, but it was an agreement that, that it would cooperate with the government as it investigated bribery in connection with Michael Madigan, public official A, who in that 36-page document was identified 72 times as public official A. And it's like, wow, this is a freaking big deal because what, you know, it started in 2011, it went up through 2019, and, and what, you know, what, it, what was clear was, you know, in these, in these documents, whether it's a deferred prosecution agreement, as that is known as, or an indictment, the feds sprinkle in like these references, public official A or individual A or whatever, and it becomes kind of this puzzle to try to figure out who these people are. And, and you know, in that document, it's just clear, all these people, you know, they're, they're powerful people unto themselves. I mean, you're talking about um, probably the most powerful woman at that point in time, Anne Promajori, who was the CEO of, of Commonwealth Edison in the middle of this. And, 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 you know, it wasn't long before she was out at ComEd and then, and then later indicted. And, it, it, and the allegations are basically that allegedly he was arranging for people to have jobs at ComEd in exchange for giving ComEd, ComEd's legislative agenda favorable treatment in the state house. Yeah, it was a very kind of Byzantine way in which it was all allegedly happening where, you know, they, they, these would be subcontractors who would get $5,000 a month contracts to, to basically, these were no-show jobs basically to, to precinct captains you know, and, and to, to other operatives in the Madigan organization. And they were filtered through, you know, one of the places, allegedly, they were filtered through was the, the City Club of Chicago's uh, uh, head, Jay Doherty. And, and Doherty, uh, he, he was a real player in, in politics in town here for a long time. He, he, uh, he started up this, this group, you know, where, uh, you know, every power player in town wanted to speak in front of his luncheon. And, and uh, you know, ComEd, as we would learn later, had such a prominent role in all of that. They, they had the table right up front, their executives sat there, and, and you know, as, as we later learned in the deferred prosecution agreement and later in Doherty's indictment, that, you know, he, a guy like Doherty was allegedly playing this, this role where he, you know, would take money that was coming out of ComEd, ratepayer money, that's not supposed to be used for lobbying, by the way, and it goes, you know, through him as a, as a registered lobbyist at the city for ComEd, and then he would sprinkle it to these these operatives. And the end game for ComEd allegedly is that they got rate hikes passed. There and were, yeah, there were two or three major pieces of legis of energy legislation that that resulted in billions of dollars in profits. So we all are paying more yeah. to ComEd in exchange for yeah. Madigan and his people allegedly getting these no-show jobs, getting these contracts. The, Am I, is that basically the gist of it? Well, it's accurate. And, yeah. and, and these energy bills are probably the most complex type of legislation that ever goes through Springfield. Because I guarantee you, 
that, that rank and file legislators have no freaking clue what these bills do when they vote on them an hour before adjournment. They, and this part really bothers me. So either one of you help me on this one. So I, I've read the coverage and the accusations that uh, Michael Joseph Madigan exchanged these jobs for this favorable legislation. And I've had Quinn on my show, and we've talked Patrick Quinn, because the first piece of legislation was overriding a veto uh, about uh, some legislation. Uh, none of this legislation passed without Republican support. So I always ask Republicans, okay, well, Mad Dog was trading his support for jobs. It was pure corruption. What's your excuse for voting for the legislation? What's the Republican? Mad Dog was trading, throwing away all what he supposedly believes in, because supposedly he's a man of the people, 13th Ward, ordinary, hardworking folks, just want their streets paved and their garbage picked up, don't care about ideology, right? Isn't that what he's supposed to be? But he's betraying all of them, in ex allegedly, in exchange for a few jobs for his cronies. What's the Republican? Uh, excuse for passing the legislation that's so destructive to consumers. And so my question has always been, like, is Madigan um, just playing everybody with this? Because the legislation would pass anyway, right? I mean, would Michael Joseph Madigan stand in the way of ComEd and keep them from getting a rate hike? The Republicans already signed on to it. I, I can't recall, help me, Michael Madigan, until Rauner, God bless him, he took a stand for unions with Rauner, until Rauner, has Michael Madigan ever stuck his neck out for anybody who wasn't taking care of Michael Madigan? Has he ever stuck his neck out for some poor people on the south or west sides or for the public schools in Chicago or for somebody who was standing up to Mayor Day? I can't recall him on the front lines of any of these things. So, Lane, you gotta help me out. You were behind the scenes. like. Was Michael Madison just playing everybody, you know, knowing that the legislation would pass anyway? For 40 years? I would say yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the guy was in office for 40 years. He, he could have done a, a, so many great things in the state, and it w he was just constantly trying to build power for himself. Well, this was my question for, this is, this is the next question I wanted to ask, actually, is like, Looking back at that 40-year run, so in this book, this is a new book by Ray Long of the Chicago Tribune. This is, I guess, kind of the first book about Madigan that's really at least been recently published. Um, in it, uh, Charlie Wheeler, who was the longtime president of the, of the press corps down in Springfield, has an introduction, and uh, the, his assessment is that in the, in the grand scheme of things, Michael Madigan did more good than harm to the state of Illinois and the people of Illinois because he assured that, there, that the Democratic majority was maintained in the legislature, which allowed a whole slew of different kind of, you know, ag agenda items to be passed, progressive legislation to be passed, um, and that for all of the kind of shenanigans uh, on balance, he pro his reign probably resulted in more good than harm uh, for the people of Illinois. What, what, do you, what do you guys think? Well, I mean, I, I respect Charlie a great deal. I mean, he's sort of like the dean of the press corps. I mean, he started covering Springfield. I think he covered the Constitutional Convention in 1970. Yeah. And so that's where he got to know Madigan initially. And the two of them had a very close relationship when Charlie was a reporter 
for the Sun-Times up until like the early, uh, early 1990s, I believe. Um, you know, I, I, I think, I think some, of, some of what Charlie says there is true. I mean, there were certainly, you know, you, you can point to the things that passed on his watch. I mean, the death penalty. Like what? The death penalty was abolished, not because of him necessarily, but he allowed that to go forward. Uh, you, you know, uh, I, I mean, he, he's, he, he's not a, uh, an advocate for gay marriage, but that, that, uh, that was legalized on his watch. He allowed that to happen. But you know. he does it out of convenience for himself. Oh, I'm not. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not. I don't believe that this is something that. No. Yeah, I know. Surely, you know, it's in his heart. I think that. I think he measures everything through that political lens of, of what it is. And you know, back on ComEd, what what's interesting about the utility company is that you know Madigan, over his career, has has viewed patronage as like one of the most important functions of his job as a public official. He, 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 you know, helping people get jobs, he thinks, is one of the main functions of a legislator. And, you know, maybe it's right, maybe it's wrong, I don't know. Like, if you want a job in state government, get your legislator to write a letter. But what Commonwealth Edison, they, they have this vast number of, the, of jobs where, I, if I'm a legislator, I can call their lobbyists and say, hey, I need help. My, my guy here, who has had, he's, he's struck out in life, and he needs to get a job doing something at the utility company. Can you help? That is a transaction that occurs where there are no fingerprints. Mm -hmm. Because you know you can't, unlike the state payroll where you can go to the comptroller and get a database of who, who's working, you can't see that. There's just no tracks that are left from that. And so I think what happened probably with ComEd was that it became a valuable place where, where jobs could occur. And you remember with Madigan, like with Metra, Patronage. That was a, a huge scandal at at Metra, yeah. where where he was. You know, he got himself. You know, he, he was trying to get people promoted, trying to get people uh, hired there. And and there was a, there was an executive director at that agency that said, No, I'm not going to do it. And just like Elena, you know, when somebody says no to him, they get punished. And this guy was, you know, got, yeah. got put on a rail, had out of, you know, right out of town. Well, the, you know, the one thing we haven't got into. Uh, is his property tax appeal business. I mean, I know people want to ask questions. We're going to open yeah, it up. Yeah, we're going to get to so. those questions in a second. Uh, this yeah. is important. Yeah, but uh, I just uh, need to know this one. Uh, <laughs> I struggle with this a lot, Elena. So in what universe is is it like considered okay for the man, I, the one guy in the city council who approves every single contract? We'll leave Burke out of this for the moment. Uh, and uh, the, the most powerful, as I said before, uh, legislator or politician in the state of Illinois, and it's it's okay for him to have a property tax appeal business uh, in which some of the wealthiest landlords, most of whom are Republican, I like to point out, and own commercial buildings, yeah, commercial buildings downtown, uh, come to him uh, for tax relief, and he his firm makes their case in front of the Cook County Assessor. Uh, and the Board of Review, and by lowering the, uh, the value of their building, the taxable value of the building, they pay less in taxes. So I need to understand this, how, uh, <laughs> I figured I would know this answer after all these years in Illinois. How is this acceptable behavior? Like, why? Why what? is this legal? Yes, thank you. People go, <laughs> is that legal? And, you know, like when you guys encounter it, Elaine, when you first encountered it, 
did, did it just like think? Did you think in your mind like, damn, that's some sleazy stuff? Or go ahead. Talk about I was it. just really naive when I worked for him. Honestly, when when I used to door knock, he would give us not him specifically, but people above me would give us these petitions that it would be like, sign this petition if you want lower property tax property taxes. And full knowing that Michael Madigan was the speaker of the house and was a property tax appeals attorney. So like I was just like young and almost just a stupid passing this around, doing my job essentially. But he would give us those to pass around. We could collect them and do nothing with them. Um, it was all manipulation. Um, it's all a game. Um, Wait, you, had to you had to ask people to sign petitions for allegedly some kind of legislative agenda to lower taxes, but you guys never actually did anything with those signatures? Right. What? It was really to collect their information. <laughs> um, so, um, I mean, of course it's unethical. And it's funny, I was just on a, a work call a couple of weeks ago with uh, several operatives and someone that um, used to be an election attorney. And we were talking about Madigan stuff. And full disclosure, I work for the Cook County Assessor now, so I actually know a lot about this property tax stuff. Um, and this old uh, uh, election attorney said, you know, I've always known Madigan to get very close to the line of breaking the law, but never actually crossing the line. And then he goes, I know Elena doesn't feel that way, and that's not her experience, but this is always the experience I had. And of course, I think a lot of people know that I'm very outspoken, and I tend to not hold my tongue <laughs> in situations like this. But I did, because I work for someone now, and I have to be careful. Um, but I think to myself, why are, why are we giving that excuse? Shouldn't we be holding our elected officials to a higher standard? Why would we want our elected officials to be getting close to breaking the law? And of course, as we've seen, he's now been indicted on 22 counts, and it seems that he has broken the law. Will he get convicted? Who knows? But he's been indicted. Dave, you uh, addressed the same issue that she, Elena just addressed, the notion that it's since it's not illegal, it's okay. It's, that seems to be the prevailing notion here uh, in Chicago and Illinois. And then you and Danny Milopoulos and all these other investigative reporters are always like trying to find out, well, did you cross that one line that makes something that we all can see is totally unethical and we shouldn't be putting up with, but this is illegal. What is it about Illinois and Chicago that a guy like Madigan could have a, a booming property tax business and no one seems to really care about it. You know, because the money gets spread out. Everybody gets a piece of it. I mean, I, I, you know, the thing about why these conflicts of interest happen, I mean, I was kind of looking at this a few weeks ago because I was trying to think why, 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 over and over and over is this happening. If you guys all get, you know, if you have insomnia one night here, go to your computer and, and, and look up this statute. It's the Illinois Governmental Ethics Act, and it's been in place since 1967. And it was actually put in place by Abner Mikva and Paul Simon. And so there you go. You've, that, that is the gold standard. But there, there's, within it is a, is a code of conduct for legislators. And you pull that up and you look at it and it's like, well, that's a good idea. They shouldn't have conflicts of interest. That's, an, that's a good idea. They shouldn't um, vote on things where they might have a conflict of interest. And, and you know, a number of things that like sound like reasonably good ideas to combat conflict of interest. Well, then you get to the very last line, and that's the enforcement mechanism. And it's like, 
this, this is, these are only guidelines. These are only guidelines. And so, so you can't be censured, you can't be thrown out of the house, you can't be anything. And it's like that, that right there in a nutshell, it's not the only reason it happens. Greed and vanity and all these kind of base human traits that, that you see in, in a lot of politicians, that's what drives this thing. And it's like the bank robber, you know, you think you're always smarter than the last guy that got caught. It's the same principle here. Yeah, well, I, I've always felt that Maddie and, uh, and, and I've been so critical of him tonight, but I was cheering him on from two, uh, 2014 to 2018 because I do think he took a stand against uh, Rauner, and I appreciate that very much. But uh, I do believe that all this was just sort of a way, like the Commonwealth Edison Jobs and the property tax appeal business was just like his way of getting money from these powerful forces. And in exchange, he would make sure that people like me would never, it, legislation that people like me would want would never advance anywhere. So you get what I'm saying? So like tax reform would never happen. Don't worry about it, you know what I mean? We won't listen to that, like the weirdos, like the guy from the reader. We'll just take care of you downtown businessmen. In exchange, they gave him property tax business. I just think that's uh, kind of how the game is played in um, uh, in Chicago. That's well, why Madigan. You know, the, like if you go to the, Mad the Madigan and Gets and Diner website, it used to be you could go that's there. That's the law firm. That's the law firm. Yeah. It used to be you could go there and, and they would have a, a, a little tab that said, uh, clients and this up until probably 2016 or 17 you'd click on it and there was there would be this long sheet that they were doing here and I, I I was often curious like well all right that that disclosure is interesting it's like they're doing something kind of right here by saying who these people are but then it, it just abruptly disappeared and and so you, you couldn't see it anymore and on the economic interest statements that these people file with the state uh, if you're a lawyer you're not compelled to identify who your clients are. And, and so that, that's a problem here. And, and you know, Madigan, like, you know, just imagine any kind of major player in, in, Chicago, in the Chicago business world, they were clients of his. And, yeah. and they all had business in Springfield, every single yep. one of them, in one way or the other. They wanted to pass a bill or kill a bill. And, and you know, the only inkling you ever got that, that the conflict of interest thing was happening would, would you know, Madigan might might not vote on a particular bill, but he would never say why. He would never say, oh, I have a conflict. He wouldn't even say that. Yeah, he never would. Yeah, and I remember, did you talk about the, the uh, marriage equality bill? He made Greg Harris, remember that? I don't know if you were around for that one. Greg Harris was introducing it. It was all about to come for a vote, and they pulled it. I'll never forget it. I don't, there, there were people in the legislative chambers booing, and Greg Harris had to take the hit, and and I always felt, and Elena, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I may be unfair to Michael Joseph Madigan. I always felt he pulled that bill so he could get another year of funds from all the powerful people who were backing the equality bill. Do you follow what I'm saying? And then all the people like Madigan's uh, uh, press people told him, Ben, no, you don't understand the complexity of legislation. We didn't have the votes, so we couldn't play our hand there. And I'm like, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I believe that he was just holding it back to get another year's worth of funds. So here we are, Elena. Reveal the secret. Was Michael Joseph Madigan holding it back to get another funds? Or were all those publicists correct? And they told me, oh, no, Ben, you don't understand the legislative process. We could not just show our votes. Go ahead. I cannot answer that question. <laughs> Fair I have enough. no idea. 
<laughs> okay, there you go. I well, you let's take some questions from the audience. Wow, Frank, he's on it. Let's have a question here, and then, sir, you're next. I think. I remember after the 2020 election, Senator Durbin was being interviewed by some reporter, and he was asked about how a bunch of the U.S. House Democrats who were running here in Illinois lost their elections, and they were asked because the Republicans tied them all to Madigan. And Senator Durbin said, I hope he, Senator Durbin said something, and I'll all remember, as soon as Senator Durbin basically kind of criticized Madigan, that opened up the floodgates, and like that gave permission to Senator Duckworth, Governor Pritzker, and all the other elected Democrats who kind of were tiptoeing around because this was right after, right after the 2020 election, and the indictment happened when Senator Durbin just kind of gave permission. So, uh, Dave, do you think uh, that's what triggered all this, the downfall of Madigan, uh, when Durbin essentially said, it's okay to oppose the powerful Oz. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you think that's what signaled it? I don't know if it led to the downfall of him. I mean, certainly, you know, Durbin has kind of maneuvered his entire career around Madigan as best he can. I mean, he, he's, Durbin was a product of the Paul Simon world, and, and, and he, he really was, uh, you know, he had the advantage of being based in Springfield where, you know, yeah, that's the capital, but like it just—he just didn't—he didn't need Madigan in the same way a lot of other people did. And plus, Madigan's interest really wasn't at the federal level, unless you know it involved the Lipinskis, you know, because they were in, in the backyard. But um, Durbin, Durbin played a key role in that. I mean, there was blood in the water. I mean, he, he knew he knew that Madigan was becoming more and more and more a problem to to Democratic candidates. And finally, it was time to speak out and. Durbin did it to his credit. I mean, you know, it was it, he, he didn't do so earlier. He, he had the chance, obviously, multiple times along the way to, to criticize Madigan, and there was no, no real platform to do that safely for, for even a guy like uh, Durbin. But, yeah, he was one of the early yeah, but critics. Betsy Durbin and Betsy Lonergan lost in, in the Illinois 13 because they kept running out of Madigan. Yeah. Well, Alina, that's a question for you. Uh, how much of a pariah has Madigan had he become? Like, I just some every now and then I have this nightmare where he was still the speaker as we head into this November election, and devastation for Democrats and MAGA triumphs. Uh, how bad was it for to have Madigan around as speaker? You know, when I even when I worked for him, I think his approval rating in the state was only eleven percent, which is really really bad. Um, and I, it just declined from there. And of course, I don't visit my hometown very often, but when I do and my parents have the TV on, it is just ad after ad after ad of um, elected officials being tied to Madigan, even if there's no real tie. So I think I agree with him about Durbin. I think he, Durbin was really invested in um, Betsy Dirksen Londrigan's race um, and, you know, her being constantly tied to Madigan uh, really tanked her campaign, I would say. Um, and I think that's when people started to realize, like, we have to distance ourselves from this. I mean, I personally believe they should have distanced themselves Absolutely. from him many, 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 many years ago. Um, what, what year was that campaign? 
Um, it was just two years Wait, ago, about right? The laundry campaign. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But before the rounder years, before the rounder years, though, were there was there such a sharp association between like Madigan and corruption? I feel like that's the, the, going back to that Uber driver who was ranting about Madigan, like. This seems like kind of a recent thing in state history that like these there's like this conceptual association between Madigan and corruption. Absolutely, and that uh, that's an see was again left. Absolutely, there was an association. Yeah, no, absolutely, that that link between Madigan and corruption, so that they're two neck neck and neck, was a byproduct of years of propaganda from Bruce Rauner, funded by Kenneth Griffin. I think we. I, that's my view, and uh, it backed up by the Tribune's editorials, hammering, 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 and in the public's eye, it caught on, and uh, I'm pretty sure Republican focus groups uh, figured out that this was a good uh, tool for them, and they just doubled down, and they didn't like make Rahm Emanuel the evil guy, they didn't make John Cullerton the evil guy, they made Madigan the evil man, and I've always wondered, like, did Madigan rise to the occasion because of that and fight Rauner? Did he fight Rauner so hard because he took it personal that they had spent all this money turning him into such a pariah that the Uber driver would spew rhetoric about him? Do you think that's why he took the stand against Rauner? Um, I think he was just trying to assert himself as the more powerful person in the situation. And I think um, the race with Juliana Stratton against Ken Duncan is a great example of that proxy war um you know each side each campaign the one i was working on and the opponent we each spent about 2.5 2.6 million dollars and that's a state house race that's a hundred thousand people in a district that's really crazy i remember um marty quinn called me no it was will kushno he was a administrator in the party called me one day and said we have six hundred thousand dollars coming to you and i just went to the BMO Harris in the South Loop and sat in the lobby and waited for people to drop off $200,000 checks to me that entire day. Um, it was just, I, I think he was just trying to assert power and I think that race showed the type of power and influence that he did have because we did win that race by uh, 36 points. Yeah. Although I always say, not that it matters, that uh, Ken, uh, would have beat Juliana Stratton, and it just wouldn't happen. He, in my humble opinion, I, I got to give Rich Miller credit for this. Ken Duncan took a stand against Madigan and the Democrats, but it didn't help the people of his district. Do you get what I'm saying? Had he stood up to Madigan to help the people of his district, he'd have mopped the floor with, I believe that. I, and that's the, I owe that to Rich Miller. He's the one. But Obama got involved with that race. Yeah, Obama came in and he said, sit down, Duncan. Remember that? That's the sit. first time a sitting president has ever endorsed in a state house race. Wow. Should we take an, yeah, there was a question back there. I forgot. Um, so you've all sort of treated the ComEd scandal and Elena's sexual harassment complaint kind of as two separate things. But it seems to me that before Elena came forward, Madigan seemed invincible and untouchable. Um, and I'm just wondering what connections you see between the uh, Elena coming forward and the ability of, of the U.S. Attorney and other people to uh, take down Madigan later. Do you want me to answer? 
So when, after I came forward and my lawsuit was very much in the news at this time, I think it was May 2019, um, the Tribune broke the story that Kevin Quinn, who was my harasser, um, his house had been raided by the FBI. And it had been exposed that multiple $5,000 checks had been paid to Kevin Quinn um, by the direction of, we believe, Mike McLean from ComEd Lobbyists. He had amassed $30,000 um, for doing little to no work. And mind you, this is a man that they had fired, you know, quote unquote, for harassing me. Um, so he shouldn't have been getting paid from anyone related to this organization at all. Um, that's kind of the, the tie to the ComEd scandal in, in my, my story. So I think it, it, my situation kind of like uh, made a little bit of a crack in that investigation. Um, but I mean, I still think he would have been indicted with or without my story. You know, what I think's interesting to tie into is that, you know, in both Elena's case and in the ComEd case, you know, you have these critical players who are key people in the Madigan orbit. You know, the Quinn brothers, people, as Elena said, uh, a guy, Marty Quinn, whom Madigan knew since they were kids. And then in Mike McLean, a guy whom Madigan knew since the early 1970s, served in the Illinois House with them. Um, you know, people who were trusted, people that, that Madigan felt comfortable for decades, you know, they would get the business done. And, and I think ultimately what both these things show is that, that you know, it, it, it's just impossible for one person to kind of maintain control over this vast, vast empire he had built. And, and you know, the cracks were these people screwing up, it appears. You know, screwing up in like, you know, in bad ways, as, as Elena's case was. Screwing up with McLean, you know, seemingly speaking for him on a lot of things, but, but doing honestly what appear to be very stupid things if, if they're true. Um, in, in saying the things that he did, you know, putting so much into emails that, that you know, you can't ever imagine Madigan doing that. He, he just never would, would write anything in an email. And here we have Mike McLean, you know, sprinkling every, you know, every few emails with these references to himself, capital H, in reference to, to Madigan, you know? That's bizarre. I think it's really remarkable how many stupid people he surrounded himself with. And I think that's the downfall. I mean, when people talk about Madigan and his organization, they're always like, they're, everyone, they're so smart, they're so smart. And I was like, they are not that smart. And I think my case is actually one of the best examples of that. I was three steps ahead of them on every moment of that situation. Of course, I had Joanna Klonsky as my publicist, and I had great attorneys, which, I mean, I w obviously I had an amazing team, and I couldn't have accomplished all of that without them. But um, I think my case is probably one of the first times where it really exposed um, that maybe they weren't as smart as people made them out to be. Well, it sounds like, I mean, it's kind of a classic situation where people are in, ha have access to power long enough, are insulated amongst themselves long enough that the kind of judgment about reality and other people gets totally warped by this like self-reinforcing power bubble. Um, and I feel like it's a pretty classic situation where it takes just like a little push to, to crack it and then the whole thing can, can sort of come down because it's, it's, it's yeah, it's um, 
mean, yeah, how, how, I don't know. That whole fucking setup in the Lithuanian Museum yeah, is just, it's, it's just, it's, it's too weird. It's, uh, there's something, there's something, they can't, can't be that smart. <laughs> I, I'm going to disagree with you, Lena. I don't think it would have gotten as far if you hadn't come forward. And, um, you know, to the, the point embedded in the question, like when they saw him take some shots from you and you didn't disappear, uh, that's when people get bolder. And I've seen a lot, you've probably seen this too, the first punch yep. and then, oh wow, the person who threw the punch, I'm back in the sports metaphors, it didn't die, you know what I mean? Oh, maybe we could throw some punches and all of a sudden. Well, I mean, your case was so, I mean, you know, you, you just had such instant credibility. Those text messages told everything. And you know, the thing to not forget about Elena is that like, you know, these people that, that begin their careers as staffers for Madigan, if they stay the course, if they're loyal, if they produce, you know, they, they often land in really important lobbying jobs. They get boosts up into judgeships. They get, they get, you know, the the head of AT&T uh, of Illinois right now, the CEO or the president of AT&T Illinois is a former policy director for Madigan. And, and of course, AT&T now seems to be like maybe the next uh, domino to fall in this whole comet investigation. But, but like, you know, in coming out the way you did, you sacrificed all of that, and 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 these these are jobs that if you stick with it long enough, you are going to be living in Winnetka. You're going to be living in a in a six six bedroom house. You know if that's your ideal. I mean it's not my ideal either. But like you know that 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 wealth though that those people have is is quite something. Okay, um, so one thing it's a little tangential, but I wanted to ask about was a. Uh, uh, Alderman Danny Solis, who had a uh, very prominent role on the comment side of the ledger. Um, and other than the various obvious lesson of don't do crimes over the phone, maybe, uh, what do you think might be some uh, lessons or takeaways from that as part of the indictment and as a, you know, a part of this discussion about you know, maybe Michael Joseph Madigan was not so savvy as he seemed to be? Well, I mean, Solis is, there will be books written about Danny Solis. I mean, he, he's at the center of the, you know, a guy who like kind of just crept his way up to the, the zoning board chairman and, 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 and wound up being in the center of really two of the biggest political scandals, uh, the Madigan case and the Burke case. And, you know, I, I, I'm st I, I think he, uh, he, he is a figure when these trials come and we hear his testimony, and we hear the tapes played that likely exist, we're all going to be sitting there thinking, seriously, did this really happen? You know, it's going to be really dramatic. I, I uh, uh, first of all, Danny Sleese was on this stage at a, a First Tuesdays event. Yes, he was, with, get ready for this, Rick Budos. That was the, uh, the they were good friends, and they were on here. It was Fort Maya was my co-host, McDunkey was here. And that was right around the time I put this together. Uh, it was right around the time uh, he sat down with Madigan. So he would probably have the wire while he was on the stage. Those feds. <laughs> Who's that weird guy from the rear? Um, but, uh, you know, that's something. Elena, I got to ask you this. I mean, piggybacking on that one. Um, well, isn't Madigan too smart to be caught on, I guess this gets back to your last answer, you know Look, what I'm saying? I think he's a smart man. I think he surrounded himself with some very, 
messy, unintelligent people. Um, yes. She said it was the tribalism, uh, that it's this kind of Irish Catholic loyalty that I guess is maybe blind to people's competence or lack thereof. Right. I think, you know, he would he insulated himself. He surrounded himself with a lot of people that ended up not being that smart or knowing how to handle things well. And uh, again, my case is a really great example of that. If, um, you know, the attorney that called me to meet with me when I was reporting this, um, she would have known that I was not going to just let it die. But she chose to not call me back. And she chose not to respond to my texts. And then she chose to not call me back again. And then I was actually sitting with a candidate of mine at her house, um, who's here right now. Uh, she, I was, I was crying one day. And she's like, you have to tell me what's going on. I know something really serious is going on. You have to tell me. Told her everything, and she's she just happens to be a, a, an attorney by trade. And she's like, you either need to like move on from this or you need to hire an attorney. And if you're going to hire an attorney, you need to not tell anyone else about this story because it's really serious. Um, and that day, I started calling attorneys. And that's Commissioner Bridget Degnan, who's one of my best friends. She's here. Um, and uh, she's just been like a godsend for me and such a pillar of strength through this entire experience. Um, but if it weren't for her, I would have never even started calling attorneys. And literally three weeks later, the, I had a press conference. Yeah, that's what probably the advice I would have given you too. I would have said, look, either <laughs> fish or cut bait. Do something or go work your way up to that mansion in Winnetka. All right? Well, but I don't want to hear I mean, more cut. But seriously, it. how hard is it to find a lawyer in this town that doesn't have some link yeah. to Madigan? It reminds me of that Sopranos episode where, where they're talking about divorce and, yeah, and, yeah, and, goes to and Tony goes to every lawyer. You know? Not only that. I mean, I was sitting in my attorney's office the day before the press conference, the day that uh, Madigan fired uh, Kevin Quinn when it hit the news. You know, he, they fired Kevin Quinn preemptively the day before my press conference, which is a whole year after I reported it for the first time, mind you. Um, I'm sitting in my attorney's office, and I got a text message, and I flipped it over, and it was the Lieutenant Governor Juliana Stratton. She said, I'm really proud of you. Thank you for speaking out. That's actually how I learned that Kevin Quinn had been fired. Um, but in that conversation, my attorneys were saying, you might want to consider not moving forward with this because we're afraid you're going to get sued for defamation if there's anything that's even remotely defamatory here. Um, so that's them preemptively firing Kevin Quinn was probably one of the biggest mistakes they ever made. But it's like, you know, you, you, you get the lawyers that, that have ties to him, mm -hmm. the judges who have ties yeah, to him. Man. It's like, how do, that's that. Yeah. It was hard. It was hard to find an attorney in this case. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. Do, are there other... Yeah. Do we got a question? I have a question. Do uh, only men have questions here? Ladies, send us your questions. Go ahead, sir. Uh, thank you so much for uh, the session. It's been really informative uh, for me as somebody who doesn't follow uh, these politics as much as I'd like. Um, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, this period over the last 40 years. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit, bring us to now, um, give us an idea of what's going on um, especially, again, for somebody like me who doesn't follow things as much as we like, and 
again, it, it was sort of a breathe a uh, sigh of relief when we saw he was leaving, and then there's less of a spotlight, is my sense now. Um, you mentioned ethics laws, um, but also, I mean, what does this empire that he was building, what does it look like without him? Um, anything like that that you can do to update us and bring us to the present and maybe even looking forward? Well, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, you know, Madigan has got people all over state government, all over the lobbying world, all over the, the, the corporate world who are part of his, you know, so, I mean, in, in some respects, it almost kind of runs itself on automatic pilot. But, you know, I think what over time becomes more and more difficult for these companies that, that, that hired his people, for the lobbyists that, that got hired because of their connections to him, I think what becomes more and more difficult for all of them is they don't have that ability to walk into the second floor office of Mike Madigan at the Capitol and, and lay out what they want and have him deliver. And so I think it, it's just sort of like a, you know, like a tree that gets chopped down. I mean, the, the root structure eventually kind of shrivels up. I mean, that's kind of what, it, it may take time, but. It may, I mean, you think that it'll just reorganize itself around some new, some new power structure will eventually crop up and I don't, I mean, I don't know if Chris Welch is the guy, but uh, it seems like, yeah, when the when when the big game goes down, it seems like there's some kind of uh, uh, usually fight on the ground to figure out who's going to control most of the scraps. I mean, there's a bit of a power vacuum right now because, like, you know, you have in, in Speaker Welch, someone who's in his first term, he's still very new at this job. He's got Madigan connections himself. And, and, you know, I think it's going to be a matter of time, you know, to see kind of how he endures. I mean, I think, you know, there's no sign of problems for him at the moment. But, but you know, both he and Harmon and the, the Senate president are new legislative leaders. And Governor Pritzker, you know, he, he's, he doesn't need anybody's money. And that, in a way, that frees him up. You know, it gives him a certain level of independence to not have to rely on these entities. Well, I, I, I'm uh, filled with gloom and doom because as bad as uh, Madigan was from an ethical standpoint, uh, I think he was pretty effective um, as a strategist. And I'm very concerned about Madigan's not playing around. This is me speaking. Uh, and uh, this coming election, uh, the way they're using uh, crime as an issue, uh, I could see Madigan taking, and I don't even call them Republicans because they're not the, like the Republicans you grew up with back home down downstate it's it, you know i looking at the commercials that richard Irvin's coming out with in his attempt to win them over and i see how deep it is and uh my concern without madigan around and i get really i'm going to ask you this question elena because you would know is that the democrats could be in trouble uh in the, i think uh, we're in huge trouble yeah i'm talking about in the state of Illinois. Yeah, yeah i think we're in huge trouble but with that being said a lot of these issues are caused by the corruption and unethical behavior that he led in our state for 40 years. So it made the Democrats weaker in the big picture. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So would it be nice for him to have a stronghold over it right now to protect us? Perhaps, but he's also one of the largest causes of what's going on right now. Yeah. Mm. Hi. Or, uh, go uh, ahead. Could one of you talk about the relationship between the speaker and the mayor of Chicago over time? Um, what has there been their relationship? Great question. Uh, 
Man, don't get me started on this one. And this is why I was so always irritated. Because I spent most of my, the 80s and the 90s, utterly obsessed with Chicago. And uh, really, it was, it was like uh, when Madigan took the stand against Ronald, I started, really started paying attention to Madigan outside of his uh, property tax business. And Madigan let all these mayors do whatever they want, all this corrupt stuff, never made a move to block them. His alderman in the 13th Ward, which I get a kick out of Marty now, is suddenly finding his voice, you know, and uh, particularly voting on like police issues, breaking with Mayor Lori Life. I'm smiling because the 13th Ward alderman was tr traditionally a rubber stamp. Whatever Richard Michael Daly wanted as mayor, that alderman would vote. Same thing with Rom. And I always thought the exchange was Madigan controlled Springfield. Whatever the mayor wanted in Springfield, he would deliver for the mayor. Uh, so what, TIF laws that would enable the mayor to use it like a piggy bank? No problem, we're gonna bury the TIF, any kind of investigation of the TIF. Elected school board, don't worry, we'll play every little game you can, keep that thing buried, you don't have to worry about an elected school board. Uh, and uh, so he, Madigan, was effectively the mayor's chief ally in Springfield that kept lefties, liberals, reformers, whatever we are, from gaining any traction. And you could see that with the votes of the 13th Ward Alderman. That's my opinion. You know, I mean, it's sort of an interesting historic footnote about Richard J. Daley. In the 1970s, there was this uh, election in the Illinois House for Speaker, and it had something like 93 roll calls where it, they, they, just, they, they were just split into all these factions. And, and Madigan was at the middle of it, and, and y you know, in the end, they all wound up settling for this Bensonville Democrat named Bill Redman. But, but Richard J. Daley was so impressed with basically the work that, that Madigan was doing and kind of managing the city's affairs, he, he, he saw to it that Madigan got elevated into House leadership under this new speaker, Redmond. And that was really the toehold that it took for Madigan to get into House leadership. And, and once, and it was because of Richard J. Daley. And, you know, if you go over time, like, you know, Madigan's relationship with Richard M. Daley was sort of mercurial. I mean, it was sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad. Um, I remember like having a sit down with Rom in 2016 or something like that, or 2017. And at the very end of the conversation, he, he Rom says, uh, "Hey, another thing, quit being so hard on Madigan," which was interesting to me to hear that from Rom. You know, I mean. You know, I mean, it was just like they, they knew, they all knew that like they needed him in Springfield. Yeah, and you know, I th had this surprising conversation once with uh, a state representative who was kind of the mo one of the most lefty progressive individuals in the state house. Um, hasn't been there that long, but I remember asking this person, "What is the deal with Madigan? Like, is this like?" an ally, like, can you count on him? Like, what, you know, is, is he good for the progressives? Like, is he good for your wing of the party? And this person said, uh, you know, this, he, what we need to get done, like, he's been helping us get these things done. And I was surprised to hear that this person didn't have any qualms with him as, you know, being a, some kind of old school Democrat or not a progressive or whatever from a per specifically utilitarian perspective, this super progressive Chicago state rep was, was you know, 
happy to have Madigan as speaker, and as 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 the person who would ram through their you know any any legislative agenda that they got enough you know enough enough people behind I guess. Well, an interesting thing about him and his his political skills in in 1991, the Republicans controlled the uh, redistricting process in Springfield. So they had the advantage of drawing these really favorable Republican-friendly maps that, that you know, would take out little sections of the city and bundle them in these suburban areas that at that time were Republican. And, and you know, Pate Phillip in the Senate wound up you know, running the table pretty much that entire decade on those maps. But in the House, those Republican maps worked for the Republican leader, Lee Daniels, only one out of five elections. Madigan got around these unfavorable districts in the 1990s four times out of five times. And he is the one, I think, who, who saw it and developed it. It was, a, it was a phenomenon that was happening on its own, but he capitalized on it. You mentioned Deb Conroy. The, the suburbs, how they used to be this Republican stronghold up until the, the, the 90s. Madigan started you know, finding cracks in the suburbs. And it was in the late 90s where he started to kind of get members elected in these various Republican seats in Lake County, DuPage County, and that, that's a big deal. Yeah, he tagged him. Let's give a shout out. Uh, well, he's, first of all, he sent operatives uh, like Elena in there to work like incredible hours, but also uh, he's not, he, he, Terry Cosgrove, a personal pack uh, on the abortion issue, abortion rights issues was huge and winning over a lot of those districts uh, in the suburbs because Terry was like hammering away on every abortion vote. So you're right, that's the transformation. So, uh, okay, we have time for one more, but make it quick. It's got to be quick. And then we have to wrap up by 8 o'clock, everybody, okay? Does anyone know if, if Lisa has any further uh, um, political ambitions now that her dad is kind of out of the way as an impediment to downstate and suburban voters? Any word from I Lisa? Know. I have no idea. I, I don't think he's... I th he may not no longer be speaker, but he's still an impediment. Uh, I would say uh, that name Madigan is still being used. Uh, Richard Irvin's using it in his commercials. Yeah. I beat Mike Madigan. Yeah, it's a very toxic name right now. I think it'd be hard to be on the ballot as a Madigan. Yeah. Great. So, thank you so much for to our guests. Why don't we give them a round of applause? Before. Before we let you guys go, just a reminder, please support and read the Chicago Reader, chicagoreader.com. You can donate, you can subscribe, you can read Ben's column, get all the newsletters. Please support and read Injustice Watch, where I now work, uh, at injusticewatch.org. We're hard at work at preparing our judicial election guide for you to take into your primary voting, so look out for that soon. Um, you can donate to us, give us, uh, subscribe to our newsletter. We'd love to have you, and please, uh, follow and like First Tuesdays with Maya and Ben on Facebook and on Instagram. We now have an account, First underscore Tuesdays. And with any luck, uh, in May, we might bring you a very special show featuring... Maria Pappas! Well, stay tuned on, stay tuned on that. She's, she's uh, a little all over the place right now. But um, thank you guys so for coming out. And um, yeah... Thank you for being here. Thank you to our guests. Look around. 
You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.